Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 275. Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. So, okay. Uh, our, kind of our, our general rule here. Well, it's not even we general. We have rules here? Well, the, I, well, Parker instituted this um, or instated this a while ago. Uh in order for us to talk about a project, you have to be at least 50% done with a project. The, the only rule for the Yeah, podcast that's kind now. of the only Right, right. Because <laughs> how many times have we talked about so I'm, This is an ongoing joke with us. but uh, So I have something I want to talk about that I am 50% of the way done with. Um, I, I've, I've mentioned a li- pieces of this project on the, on the podcast. And uh, if you've been on our Slack channel... Then you see me posting pictures. But uh, I've got this audio compressor that uh, I've been working with. But as a part of this compressor, there's a handful of control knobs on the front that are uh, stepped attenuators on them. Uh, And they're super, like, wanky hi-fi, not hi-fi, but, like, uh, pro audio uh, attenuators. They're 24-position dual, uh, what is it, dual-deck matched attenuators. So, like, every one of those words, as I say that, like, it's like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Like, the, the money signs go up and up and up. Uh, and, in fact, I, I kind of recently looked at these to see, like, if I wanted to replace these, how much would they be? And I think they're, like, $95 a piece for these. Uh, and there's four of them inside of this, uh, this project I'm working on. So, they're a bit... Okay, pricey. I just had to Google the picture of what you're talking about. It's like a... It's a rotary switch. It's a rotary switch, but with like resistors and stuff all over it. Well, here's the thing. These particular ones that I have don't even come with the resistors on them. They're $95 for just the switch. Oh. But it's a skookum switch, and, and I got a little bit of show and tell so that the people on our uh, Twitch can uh, can see this. But uh, So I'll, I'll just describe it for all the audio people. But these these rotary switches have a really nice... like. Yeah, you gotta do some ASMR. It's got some kachunk feel to it. You gotta click it really it. slow inside oh, yeah. the mic. Can you can you actually that, hear that? Oh yeah, that's the stuff. Yeah, no, it's super good. And and like I said, dual deck, big old fatty. So that's like a, a dual pole. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, the, the, the kind of the, so the input to this compressor is transformer coupled. And so you have XLR, you have your, your, your two signal ends going to it. They both go to basically a stepped attenuator. So that's what each deck is. Okay. So uh, it's, it's a, a 24P DP switch. Effectively, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it gets really ridiculous. And uh, so I, I disassembled one the other day because the story goes that I, I bought these right after um, college, Right after I graduated college, because I was like, I'm going to do something with these. They already got that vintage taste to them now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought these, and I soldered on a boatload of resistors on them. But I'm, I made a ton of mistakes on it. First of all, the soldering is garbage. Second of all, I used like 5% resistors on them. And so like the whole purpose of having like matched resistors and precision attenuators, I just blew it entirely out of the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And I used one resistor per step. So the accuracy of every step is only so good, right? Uh, Because effectively what this is, is think of a voltage divider that has 24 resistors 
in a line and you're just tapping in between each one of those resistors on there. Uh, so the other day I, I broke this, the, one of these, uh, rotary switches apart. And I was like, could I just replace the rotary element in it? Uh, that is the actual selector. And lo and behold, it's just a PCB with gold plate, uh, with, with Enig plates on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I reverse engineered this basically redesigned this PCB and instead of individual resistors, I g did a little bit of Excel foo and made a log like chart effectively such that I could get exact positions off of this thing. So, so in my application, I need it to be a total constant resistance of 15 K. Um, but then I want each tap to be a very specific, uh, ratio. Ratio of, of yeah. So you yeah, have 24 exactly. ratios of 15K. Exactly, exactly. And and they, the, the good thing about this is this particular uh, resistor or this, this attenuator feeds a very, very, very high impedance. So I don't have to worry about the load that's connected to this. So in other words, I can just calculate all the resistors for this, and I don't have to worry too much about what it's driving. Uh, yeah, it has very little current that goes through this device. Right, right. And yeah. yeah, like the actual, so each one of the taps is connected to something that's in the giga ohm range. So the actual load of what this attaches to is not going to drag down any of these values as I switch through them. Um, so uh, what I designed is, is I've got it such that the 24th position, if you turn it all the way up, is just straight pass through. Uh, and then it's 1 dB steps as you go, as you click all the way through until you get to the last step, which is basically dead short and so it's mm -hmm. negative infinity db so it's got 22 effective dbs of range uh, all the way down to zero and so basically i created this giant resistor string to get all of these exact values and they all add up to 15k and and if you've ever tried to do this or something of this sort you, you end up with well, effectively, what I'm trying to do is make a perfect log pot in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, if you look at our uh, Slack channel, I posted a, a handful of days ago. I actually measured a, a, a log pot that I purchased from Mauser to get its actual curve. And it's not logarithmic at all. It's two linears, uh, linear uh, curves that just have like a tip point such that it approximates. So it's like, yeah, it's got a, a that to it. Yeah, effectively, yeah, it's got it's just got a it goes linear for some to some rotation of the pot, and then it changes to a different linear slope. And because well, those potentiometers are only like what ten percent? Oh, twenty or twenty? Yeah. So that's they're like so they they have so the engineer right the the manufacturing engineer is like okay we need to make these super cheap. So they drew the log that's supposed to be, and then put a twenty percent bound above and below it, and then drew two straight lines. I think I think what it is is it's easier to make a linear carbon track on uh, oh, yeah, a wiper. Sure. So for sixty or seventy percent, they do one linear slope, and then for the remaining thirty percent, they do another linear slope. Uh, it's probably way more down to manufacturing, but that that's sort of the whole point. If you want if you want like a dual deck potentiometer that is logarithmic and matched, you ain't gonna get that. By just buying that off the shelf, hence why these things even exist, uh, these rotary um, attenuators. So uh, now, 
I came up with this list that approximates or, or does a pretty damn good job of getting close to logarithmic uh, attenuation, but I end up with a boatload of resistors, none of which exist in real life. Like these values <laughs> just are, are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and in fact, m almost all of them are like to three digits to get it to be accurate. Uh, so the question is like, how do I want to go and actually pull this off? Uh, and how do I get those values? Well, I've been searching for, for a bit and I found a place. Um, I, I apologize. I don't know the person who wrote this code, but I do have a link here. Uh, the, the website is uh, caffeineowl.com. I like the name. There is a calculator called RES Comb, resistor combination. Basically, you can type in whatever resistor value you want. You can say however many resistors you want if you're willing to do series or parallel combination or both, and your series of resistors, E12 or E24 or whatever. And it will go through and it will just chug through millions of calculations to find the combinations that get exactly what you want. So Ooh. what's nice is I found uh, with four resistors, I w am able to uh, to nail like exactly all your, all your every numbers. single one on there. So what I'm doing is I've I remade this board, and each position has four resistors in a weird series parallel combination that exactly nails every single point on there. Um, it ends up being monstrous because you got effectively you have 23 resistors on this because I have infinite and zero db as the end yeah, points yeah. so 23 resistors times uh, four negative infinity oh i apologize i apologize uh <laughs> so um i've got i've got about 50 percent of the project done so i'm willing to talk about that now um now so you're doing it with all through hole resistors uh-uh nope oh nope. so you're actually going to make a little smt board a little smt board all 0402 uh, resistors, 1%. I wish I could go with 0 0.1, but I'm just not going to do that. How about 0201s? No. I don't want to go that small. I want to actually be able to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the, here's the best part. For this $90 switch, um, the each one of the actual decks is just a PCB with Enig traces on it. Um, so all oh, I have to do okay, is... Okay, I see what you're saying. That you're replacing that board. This in there. board, I just have to remanufacture this board with all those resistors on and pop it in, and I get exactly what I want. Oh, that's going to look so nice. It's going to look really sexy. On top of that, okay, so if you look at the contacts on this, apologize to everyone who can't see this, uh, each one of the contacts is, is separated by a gap. So this is a uh, break-before-make style uh, switch, which in my application is actually not great because uh, that provides that makes a pop every time you switch i'm going to adjust the pads so they have little fingers that cross over each other and they and oh, convert and so it. the wiper goes over both before it switches over yeah Ooh. so i'm going to convert it to a make before break so you don't get nasty pops as you turn this oh yeah oh <laughs> This, the amount of work I go through for this. This is amazing. This is one of my favorite projects you've done. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just super happy that all it took was redes like their guts of their switch is something I can get made. <laughs> yeah. Gadget Junkie says, and thus begins Steven's lengthy career in custom switch design. Dear Lord, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'm really looking forward to this. Also, I want to get them in macrofab red so I can have these look uh, all sexy and with the red. Oh yeah, that's gonna look great. Yeah. So the lengths I'll go through for something that really kind of doesn't matter. It does matter because you're gonna have a perfect. Well, not perfect. You're gonna have a discrete logarithmic potentiometer. That's right. That's right. But not only that, it's discrete, but it has the exact values I want because you can purchase a 24 step uh, attenuator right now, but it doesn't have one dB steps. It'll have like two and then four and then whatever. Like there's, there's more accepted combinations of steps, but I want one where each step is one dB mm-hmm. and exactly one dB. And, uh, that's what's, uh, that's what's going. I have a whole um, Excel spreadsheet. I'll I'll pass that off in in case anyone wants to check it out and see all the wacko resistor values. <laughs> and I put all the combinations of resistor co- uh, parallel series combos in there, in there. too. Yeah, it's oh. kind of funny because I'm not looking forward to it, but it's uh, it basically uses every value of resistor <laughs> because it's just like whatever worked, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm excited to see that. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty stoked too. Yeah. yeah. All right. So over the weekend, or actually, I'll say last week. At last week after the podcast, um, Chris uh, Chris Colbert, who is uh, the production manager at, at Macrofab, um, he brought in a 3D print that he did on his. He has a a hobby level SLA printer. And I've known about SLA printing before and have ordered stuff that's been SLA printed. So SLA printing is like resin. So it's like a big goop. And then you hit it with UV and it solidifies. The polymers lock together and it makes a solid thing. Um, I've always done FDM, which is like you take solid plastic, melt it, and then it, and then shape it by extruding it out like a hot glue gun. Um and but he handed me this print that he did on like a two hundred dollar SLA resin printer, and I looked at the print quality and it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I gotta try this now. You know, apparently they've come down in so price where I can just like, just go order one, right? And uh, um, off Amazon and not feel super guilty about it, right? <laughs> um, so. I ordered a the same one that he has, which is a L Elegu, I think E L E G O O. Is isn't that like one of those Amazon Wonder brands? Maybe it could be. I think uh, I have an Elegu Arduino somewhere. Yeah, I think they make a lot of stuff. Um, but it's their Mars Two, and like so, my FDM printer. I've got like a a mono price. Uh, Duplicator 6, which is like a Wan Hao, something like that. Um, that printer costs the same as this printer, by the way. Same price range, like $300 to $400, basically. It took a couple hundred dollars worth of parts to get this printer, my, my monoprice one, to print how I want. And I'm printing like super high temperature polycarbonate and stuff. But and it took a long time. You remember, like me calibrating it and tweaking the value so that when you printed that calibration cube, it was twenty by twenty by twenty millimeters. Right. This thing, I took it out of the box, set it on my desk, filled the the goop chamber up, and printed a twenty by twenty by twenty millimeter cube. 
pulled it out, and it was 20 by 20 by 20. <laughs> so in other words, it's a real 3D printer that you don't have to do any work on. Correct. Wow. It was... Unicorn dust. It was kind of amazing, actually. Um, the quality of the prints, because the line thickness, like the, the, the slices, I guess you can call it, are so fine on this printer, too, that you just don't get lines. Um, let's see. So this is a, a piece of a model I'm working on. Is that an R-Wing? Yes, it is an R-Wing. <laughs> but, like, there is no lines. Yeah, it's just it looks smooth. like It looks like cast plastic. Wow. Um, I am amazed at the quality. So, okay, I've, I've known about this technology for a while, but I've never actually used it or seen it. So the question is, why isn't every 3D printer this? Is it more expensive? Is it less... Uh, is it more difficult like what's why not it's so i've only been working with this technology for about a week now so experience very limited but um the print speed is interesting because on the fdm printer you can do like tricks to the, the your model and stuff to speed up printing because it's printing a continuous line basically you know, all, all the time. So you can print stuff hollow. You can print stuff. Um, you can change the orientation because your printer is going to be faster um, doing straight lines. A bunch of little tricks you can do. This printer, on the other hand, has a set rate that it goes at because it's it's it uses an LCD screen at the bottom to turn and it shines UV light through this, the LCD screen and uses the LCD screen as like a polarizer, basically. So it's like selectively it, darkening areas, and then yeah, it's like else. it's use it's think about like a silk screen. It's yeah. just an adjustable silk screen. Got it. That's just letting UV light in instead of uh, paste and uh, for silk screen, you know, PCBs. Um, and so, it, but so it does the entire layer at once, and then it raises up, and then does another layer. So it's it's got a fixed time. So the taller your piece, the slower it is, I guess. Or the longer But it's it got takes. a fixed rate per layer. So it's very interesting on the time-wise. For the same models, my FDM printer prints faster. So, so, so it, but that means it's a way easier to simulate, right? Like to get an estimate on time, you just get the height, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, and... um. Craft Lab brings a really good point is no matter how much detail you have on the SLA printer, it doesn't slow it down. Whereas an FDM printer, the more detail you had, the slower you have to go and takes longer. So you can have insane detail and still have the same print speed on the SLA. Um, the other downside is there's the, the materials are way more expensive. Hmm. Um, the like a ginormous, like three kilogram spool of polycarbonate is like the same price as one kilogram of resin and that's like the cheap resin too that's not like this super high performance polymer polycarbonate polycarbonate plastic this is like the cheap stuff um and, so, and i have looked into i want to try different resins and that kind of stuff but you have to be careful because your printer only works in one uv spectrum it has one wave that it puts out, like 405 nanometers. So you have to make sure your resin works with that, and your resin also works with your printer because that they have they have different light outputs. And that's also the interesting thing is they're easier 
in my opinion, to dial in. Um, because there's not a lot of settings. You set like what the layer height is, and then you set like the exposure time, and that's it. That's it's that's the only sentence. Whereas if you open up like normal 3D printing software for FDM, there's like a bazillion settings to set. And tweaking just one can turn your print into a spaghetti mess versus like an awesome piece of artwork. Um, now, the only other downside is the print beds. For the same price printer, my print bed on my FDM is like four to five times the size. So you can just print bigger things on the FDM printer versus the SLA printer. That They make big SLA printers as well. They just cost more. Uh, but for the same price, FDMs are bigger. And the smell um, is smell also good. a downside. <laughs> no, it's very... It's not super chemically, but it's pretty bad. Um, whereas, like, my polycarbonate, like, when I'm running it, it, it actually makes no smell. Like, you can't even... The only way you know it's running is because it makes noise. Um, whereas the the resin printer... It actually doesn't smell when you have the enclosure on it, but the moment you lift it up to take the prints out, it just like fumigates everything. Um, and uh, and then there's that's a good point uh, brought up in chat is you also have to cure the resin prints, kind of. So they they come out solid, but they're kind of soft, and so you you have like a UV like chamber you put them in it just spins around and that's actually very interesting how that work how the one i have works is the base the base is like a turntable let me go grab it real quick so i guess I, i'm I, there's also one other aspect about this that uh isn't um we haven't mentioned you print basically upside down right because the plate lifts out of the ooze yeah yeah, it, it, it comes up, up upside down. And so you can print really interesting geometries. Just like in 3D printing you can, or FDM, you can print very interesting geometries, but you're limited by how it works. Same thing as like CNC machining or lathes work. There are certain limitations of the machine that you have to take in consideration when you're designing your part. Same thing with this. It prints a completely different way, and so you have to think of how you're designing your part and how it's going to print. But the, the chamber... It's just like a big UV chamber, so it's got it's got UV got LED LEDs in there. Yeah, and it's really shiny, but the base, so which just fell apart, is this little doohickey, which is a turntable with the with a clear base, so like the UV can go through the base. Yeah, but it's got solar panels, huh. and so it's not electrically connected to the lid the UV inside the chamber hits these solar panels, which turns the turntable. Huh. So you don't have a wire between them. That's I thought that was very interesting that they decided, instead of putting a very inexpensive wire, they're like, yeah, let's put some solar, like, some solar calculator uh, solar panels on it. Just very interesting design idea. Hmm. So, uh, interesting. Okay, so 3D printing is typically considered additive manufacturing. But yes. in SLA, you're starting with goop and you're subtracting the amount of goop. So is it subtractive? It's still added to manufacturing. Because <laughs> you still have the goop left over. It's not like you're chiseling a, a print out of, the, out of the goop. But you're subtracting goop. You're subtracting material off a reel. <laughs> and FDM printing. 
Um, the only thing I don't like about it, the smell I don't have a problem with because it's in my garage. Like whatever, right? So that might, if you are if you're printing in your 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 bedroom, that might be a problem. Um, it's actually and more expensive printers solve this problem already. But it's like so you fill up that chamber, and if you have a big print, it's going to empty that chamber, and so you have to watch it. it. I mean, it takes a long time to empty it though, but you have to pause the print and pour more resin in. Whereas the spool, I just buy big spools of FDM filament. And so I only run out like once every couple months, maybe. Mm. Um, that's the only downside, but it's, it's super easy to, to set up. Like at least this one, like the home, it's, it's the zeroing process takes no time. I haven't had any issues with like adhesion problems. Whereas like every so often, Something like in the environment, my garage will change, and then the prints don't stick to the FDM bed. And I'm like, why is this not working? And then, like, the next day it works. How do they no initially idea. stick to the bed on the SLA printer? Um, it just does a long flash, and it just the polymer sticks to the, the that's It's like a powder coated steel, hmm. and it'll just stick to it. Okay, so it just, it just does more. Yeah, it just does more to kind of like harden it onto the onto the steel. And and do you leave the resin in the little tray when you're done, or do you? That's what I've been doing. I haven't had <laughs> any problems with that so far. I don't know if you're supposed to or not, but yeah, it, it seems to be fine. I mean, I, I would call that a positive if you don't have to clean up after every time, you know. Yeah, I haven't had I haven't touched it yet, but I have been printing like once every couple days on it, so that might be it. I've also only had it set up for about a week now. Um, so we'll have to see. I, I, I so far, it's awesome. I wish I w- I bought one of these sooner. And actually, at this point, I want a bigger one, <laughs> a bigger print bed. Um, the um. So Chris, that brings up a point that's probably true. You don't want to leave it too long because the resin will settle. Now I'm like every before I print, I add a little more resin to it, so it's, it hasn't affected the prints yet, but. We'll have to see if that's actually a case, if I had to really worry about that. Or I guess if I leave it for like a couple of weeks, that's probably not a good thing. Well, okay. So if it settles, is that like, does that mean it goes bad or do you just mix it up? And I mean, so the well, you're supposed to shake the resin before you pour it. Okay. So I guess you just shake, you can probably pour it back, all of it back into the container and then shake it back up and pour it back out. Um, but I, I think it's awesome. And it's one of those things that are, where I've been experimenting with plating 3D printed stuff. And I've been plating like finished, basically polycarbonate off my FDM printer. And the only downside to that is how much post-processing you have to do to make it actually look good. Because when you plate something, you, you're you plating it to most of the time make it look shiny and nice. Shiny and chrome. Witness me. Um, and so you have to like sand all those layers out and like Bondo, sand, filler, primer, all that stuff. And it's a lot. It takes work. a couple of days to like do a good job on it and make it get a good, uh, a good um, plating process out of it. But with this, I'm going to try basically like pulling, pulling a print out, curing it, and like just hit it with a light, like 400 grit sandpaper, and then just try plating it and see how it goes. So that's what I'm going to try next. And, and so I started looking more into this. Right now, I, I, I'll take the print 
after I've finished it, mm-hmm. and I spray it with a conductive paint that like uh, MG Chemicals makes. Um, it's for actually for internal shielding inside of like plastic enclosures, so you could like you know spray the inside of your stomp box with this stuff, and it will help prevent you know it'll shield your circuit. Um, so it's highly conductive actually, and it actually works really well. The problem is to it doesn't lay super smooth when you spray it. It's kind of got a little grit texture to it. And so you got to spray it, let it dry, sand it, spray it, and keep going basically until when you sand it, it doesn't go through the to the plastic anymore, which takes forever. And if you have an intricate surface, you know, good luck trying to get it all smooth. Um, so I started looking up like, okay, is there a better way to do this? And I found an article. I can't remember... Uh, I think it was on Form Labs. They were talking about a because uh, Form Labs builds SLA printers, and so they would they had a, some customer study, and the customer was building like horn microphones, not microphones, uh, antennas, horn antennas, and they would plate them for better performance. And so they were like, we plate, we first plate it with a chemical process to deposit copper, and I'm like, what? What is that? What's plate? How do they plate copper on it? It's electroless copper plating. It's not even really plating. It's using a chemical process. But they could have said electroless copper plating, but they wanted it to sound fancy as some proprietary like pro- chemical process. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just electroless copper plating, which is you dunk it in and in, in the solution, and a really thin layer builds up, and then you can take it because now it's conductive, and then you can copper plate more onto it. And then your nickel, and then your chrome. So, hopefully, next time I talk about this, I'm going to wait till after I've tried the plating process and see how well it goes. Or in case, or like this printer explodes and catches fire, I'll definitely talk about it then. <laughs> are 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 they known for that? Uh, no, not as much. FDM printers are especially very inexpensive ones are known to catch fire. Actually. I, I I was doing I was servicing my printer because the uh, my FDM printer because the cable that goes to the head actually like I guess internally broke or something. Basically, it would work and then the head would move to the other side of the printer and then stop working. Yeah, oh, and okay, so yeah. inside that cable, it had fatigued the the wire inside of it because it looked fine. It, it would beep test, but when it would move, it would intermittently connect. Um, so I was servicing it, and I looked at the connector that goes to the heated bed. I'm gonna have to get a new connector. It's it's almost like charred black charcoal oh, instead wow. of like the nice white colors would should be. So get, prints get, fine still. Can you print uh, clear prints with SLS or SLA? Yeah, yeah, there's clear resins. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Haven't tried it yet, but yeah, I would be interested in doing that. I don't think I have an extra three to four hundred dollars lying around though. Well, I could print it for you. <laughs> I'm I'm actually thinking that that would be really useful for some stuff that I've been doing at work. I've been um I've been doing some three D prints for um Well get work to buy it. Well, yeah, I mean that's what I'm thinking about. Uh yeah. I've been doing three D prints for doing some uh some injection molded plastic stuff and this would this would I mean I'm already past the point where I need that, but uh, this would have been really helpful a few months ago. Yeah, and um, I was looking at some resins. I don't have the name in here. 
but they actually work with the 405 nanometer UV that my printer uses. And it's a, it's a very high strength, high temperature resin. Um, I'm going to order some probably when I run out of this inexpensive stuff. But apparently you can you, you can make your your molds for injection molding with this. Like you can't do thousands of units, but you can do a couple hundred with these molds. Hmm. And that'd be really very interesting for you to prototype with. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually going through the process right now of getting molds made, and it's uh, it's not cheap. No. So you could print your eventual, like, your positives, right? And so you can actually test those. But then, okay, and be like, okay, now I need to see if you can actually injection mold these. So you print the mold, injection mold through that, and make sure that you've got your geometry right for your draft angles and stuff. And then you can go, okay, now let's go put this into tool steel and actually get you know, a proper mold made. Yeah. I, I'm I'm in that process right now of getting the tool steel milled. Machined. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a massive process, especially because the stuff that I'm doing is fairly complex. Um I'm doing You have a multi piece like, mold? Yes. I don't remember how many pieces. It's I I'm pretty sure it's just two. But uh I have well, some that's not too bad then. I have some pretty uh specific geometry and very very specific places where ejection pins can go i just they can't be anywhere you know yeah yeah that's that's fun it's it's difficult um i've done it before but on on not on this scale and so i'm i'm kind of learning as i go <laughs> in a way yeah, yeah. but luckily i've got a local guy who's been really helpful that he's the expert i i provide 3d models and he's like this works this will not kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> It's fun. So actually, you know, um, another another topic that I'm I'm going through right now that uh, I've got a little bit of I, I'm I'm curious to hear other people's opinions on this, or I'm I'm, I'm in other words I'm I'm curious to hear other people's process on this. So um, I'm in I'm in the middle of a a new revision for a product that I'm working on. Um, we haven't released this product yet. We're still in the design phase, uh, but we're nearing the very end of of the design. Like it's pretty much working where we want it to. So I got some boards, and usually my process goes like this: I, I get my boards in that I've designed. I go to testing, and I find out if there were any issues. Uh, as I find those issues, I document them um, in in a large Excel sheet. I give reasons as to why that was an issue, what I did wrong, what's the fix for that. And then I, I usually create a little chart that's like, like for instance, I have six prototype units right now and I have unit one, two, three, four. I, I write in there, have I changed the schematic for this? Have I changed the layout for this problem? Uh, and then I, ha I have a list of, have I actually physically made that change on the these prototype units. So I keep track of everything I'm, I'm doing. So for instance, like a lot of things are, are simple where it's like, Oh, I, this is a wrong value resistor. So I go and I actually swap that out, but I write down, I swapped it out on each individual prototype unit. I changed the schematic. I changed the layout. So at the end of the day, once I've got everything working, my Excel sheet should show that everything has been changed appropriately to the next revision as much as possible. There's some things sometimes where it's like, oh, well, I, I can't do this unless I roll the board again. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I can bodge in any changes or just change component values or things like that. Um, and I'm curious 
everyone else's process on, on how you go through with that. Because like, I have a really kind of regimented way where I do it because I've learned in the past, if I don't do it, it doesn't happen. And then I get a second revision that has the and same resistor value still the same problem. And it's embarrassing as hell, you know? Yeah. Uh, yep, but yep. the way I like to do it is like, I make changes as I go. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm I'm at version 1.1 and I'm going to version 1.2. By the time I'm done with my testing, version 1.2 is almost ready to order because I've been making changes all along the way. Do you do it that way or do you do it the way where like you keep a list, a running list, and then make all those changes all at once at some other time in the future? Or what's your process? That That's actually how I do it, what you just said there. Because um, I use GitHub to do my hardware revisioning. It's not the best at it, but it's the best I've come across. I know we've talked about some other project uh, products, but they tend to be like EDA tool focused and not EDA tool agnostic. And I use a lot of different EDA tools because I work on so many different projects. So I just use GitHub. Um, and so my process is in GitHub, I'll have, let's say I'm on revision zero of the board, right? Um, that's kind of like your first push and you're, you haven't even built hardware yet. Um, doing all your changes, everything. And then when I'm like, okay, I'm ready to order my first board. I use the release functionality of GitHub and that makes a snapshot in time. And that out the great thing about the release functionality is you can attach files that are not originally part of your, um, GitHub repository. They're like, you can attach like a compiled like EXE or something like that, like in case of software. So in this case, I can attach my manufacturing files to it. So I'm like, okay, this is the Gerbers. This is the, the drawings with it. Everything that I send to like a fab to get made, I can attach it there. And then I get those back. Stuff's not working or I have to make changes. And so what you can do is you can use the there's you can open up tickets or issues with that re, that that release and i i just make a rolling like if it's ever i'm like okay i need to change this resistor and i might change it on the board right away but when i do that i make sure to put an entry into the issues so i have a running list now and basically i'll make sure everything's working and i'll just have the running issues list and then at the end i'll be like okay time to roll to version 1.1 look at the issues list, implement all those changes and close them out. And you can, if there's multiple people working on the project, you can chat with people in there, like make comments, stuff like that. Um, I always will put in like my rat, like if I have to change a component or something like that, I'll put in why I'm doing that um, notes, stuff like that. And then at the very end, you click release version 1.1 now exists and then attach manufacturing files and send it on its way. Um, so slightly, I, I, I try to use, I, I, I want more, I would, I would like to have a way to do that in the EDA tool, but also be EDA tool agnostic. I don't know if that's possible, hmm. but like when you're taught, like let's say, okay, I need to change R1 to something else. Sure. You can go into EDA tool and change it, but the, you don't have a change history. It just changes it. Right. And then you hit control S and then you don't have any history instead of instead of like undo right well and and well that's just the thing the the second i find one problem with my 
uh, with whatever revision I'm at. I create a new revision and I make those changes in that new revision. I never change. The oh, one so you at. are you have multiple changes until your next release. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, you might. Have, so if you cha- have to change twenty resistor values, you have twenty different board changes up until the next release. Well, I mean, I I do them all on one working file, effectively. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't have twenty different. I don't do it every time I make one change, but uh, okay. but I I basically have, yeah. The second I find an issue with one revision, I I start a new one, and that is my working one until I release it. And the only way I can release that is, uh, once everything has been solved, effectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I and I like to. Uh, I, I, I like to work as I find issues. Like, I'll find an issue, find the solution. Um, as soon as I find that solution, I implement all of those things, including all my notes and everything, into the schematic, throw it over to the board. I may not do the board layout at that moment, but I just see floating components out there that's indicating that something has changed. And so the whole goal of this is once I've made all of those changes, the the Basically, the only thing I have left to do is just reroute whatever changes were on the board, and it, and it ends up being a really quick thing, as opposed to, like, I guess I'm interleaving all the, the changes yeah. all at once. I'm doing it like this. Yeah, you and do I'm it doing like it this. like this. And that's what I'm curious is, like, what is everyone else's process flow? Like, do more people do it your way, or do more people do it my way? Because I like doing it, because I've done, I've used, I've done both in the past. Yeah. I like, I, I started doing it this this way I, I, I saying it this way doesn't make any sense the way of finding all the fixes and implementing them all at once mainly from a system integration standpoint mm-hmm. is because doing iterative changes i might not think of oh if i make this change it's actually going to affect this thing instead whereas if i do them all at once in one session sit down session i can go oh actually if i change this one thing it's going to skew this other part of the circuit and I'll catch it that way instead of doing it over a week's time. Um, that's my only suggestion. There. Sure, sure. I think either way works. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't really matter um, in the end. It's just as long as at the end of the day, your next revision fixed all the problems that you had. Now, they might introduce new problems. That's as long as happens. the old. Yeah. But yeah. But as long as the old problems don't happen anymore then you're fine. Well, and that, and that's why I, I started moving to my interleaved version because if I try to do everything all at once, I just know myself. I won't remember it all. And, and I mean, like, yeah, of course, I, I write down notes and things like that, but I find it, like, if I write down notes and then have to go in and fix those days or weeks later, they don't mean as much as if I fix them right in the moment. I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah. That's why I make sure to write everything down. Sure. Well, and the nice thing is also in both of our situations, at the end of it, you have a list of everything that has changed. Yes. And and so when that's I, the most important thing, actually. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, and 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 what's great about it in in this situation is is when it comes time for me to roll out the next revision and dump all this stuff into the system and build my build materials in the system such that my pick and place guy knows what I just have the list. I just get you know grab the old revision in the system take my notes and make my changes. It ends up like it's a ton of work up front, but at game day, it ends up being a lot less work. A lot easier. Yep. Yeah. And game day to me is like, make my, like make my board edits, 
you know, shoot out the Gerbers and stuff like that, as opposed to like, oh, do all the changes all at once. Mm-hmm. You know? But I guess it doesn't look as nice because uh, in my design meetings, everything's always like, well, I'm partially there, as opposed to like at a design meeting being like, I have everything done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just different ways of, of yeah, yeah. working through the same. It's the same process. It's just different ways of splitting up the work. Right, right. Well, and and there is one uh, downside that I've experienced, and you were just even mentioning it. It's like sometimes you're like, oh, I found this the the solution to this one problem that I was seeing, and you implement that at that moment, uh, and then you go to start testing other things, and you've broken something else. Mm-hmm. Most of my circuits are independent, so uh, you can change one without affecting others, but that's not always the case because yeah, most of my so. circuits are that way too. It doesn't. They're pretty independent, especially in the digital realm. Yeah. It's like there's not a lot that can go wrong between different systems. But there's sometimes you introduce something that, you know, causes a little more ringing or something like that. And you, yeah. Well, I, I, I did, I had one the other day where I was actually solving ringing and, and I added some capacitance uh, to some circuitry. And I was like, oh, this, this is great. It solved all the ringing. But then I went to test something that was downstream of that. And I had just completely obliterated the frequency response of it because like <laughs> I added too much capacitance and I fixed mm-hmm. something way early on. And then I was, I realized like it wasn't anywhere. So I had to roll back those changes, which it wasn't a big deal or anything like that but it was i guess that's more of a mistake that i in the moment that i was coming up with the solution i jumped to the solution too quickly as yeah, opposed you to didn't, checking you didn't, everything yeah thinking what the implication down the down down your circuit line uh it would affect yeah 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 all right so last week um i introduced a, a project which is the the amplifier project which is right behind me um and so next week, I'm hoping to have like a bigger update on it. Besides, like I've I've cut down the enclosure box, um, which I talked about actually after the podcast. We talked about it on the live stream, like after the recording. So I actually will bring it in here and show like the people on live stream afterwards again. And pictures will be in the in the podcast description, of course. But uh, hopefully next week we can do like live part replacement. So we'll go through like the schematic and like go okay. We need to find this part, a replacement for this part, and go get a replacement, that kind of stuff. Be kind of fun, I think, and different. We've never really done that before. Um, and also, I want to, like, recover it. And so it's like that vinyl material. And, Steve, what kind of material do I need to order? So the sort of the trade name for that stuff is Tolex, T-O-L-E-X. Uh, it's basically a fiber-backed vinyl um, and it's kind of akin to fake leather in uh, in low end furniture, but it's just it's meant to take abuse and look good. Generally, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it, it, it co- people use it to cover equipment that gets moved all over the place, um, and so it's tough for the most part, um, and it's generally easy to work with. So, some more than others. There's nowadays there's bazillions of different flavors of Tolex you can you can purchase, uh, and some of them have you can you can buy them in different grades of backing. So how many fibers or even some of them have no backing whatsoever. It's just the vinyl. Uh, so it, it, it depends on how much punishment you want to put yourself through when it comes to the actual upholstery work. Yeah, I want to. I want to make it. I want to make it look nice. Yeah. Um, 
So what kind of glue should I use? Because I, I suggest that, like, cause I have, like, this badass, like, automotive-grade, like, headliner material that is, or contact adhesive that is amazing. Um, and I mentioned to you, you said don't use that. So, and this comes purely from experience. I started using uh, contact cement, like the DAP brand you can buy at Home Depot. I think that's actually, no, it's not that. Anyways, it doesn't matter. I thought, I thought it was DAP. Uh, no, that, that is one of them. I don't think that's the brand I have. Oh, I'm just saying, like, that's the stuff you get at uh, at Home Depot and, and, and all of those guys. And that stuff, it works. It functions. In fact, um, well, it's it's well over on the other side of my shelf. The very first thing I Tolexed, I still have, and it's still running strong, and it was done with that contact cement. Um, oh, I bet. It actually is. It's DAP wel- Weldwood contact adhesive. So that stuff is like earwax and snot mixed together, and yeah. it it goes on very thick, and it doesn't thin out, and it has no, one... No, you have to thin it out to spray it. Well, it has one significant problem is, in my experience, it actually softens the Tolex, so the Tolex doesn't it doesn't work well with your fingers and it stretches. So you like any texture that's in the vinyl, you lose it and you get these stretch lines across it. So it takes a ton more skill to work with. Also, it's incredibly slow to dry, and it'll peel with age, with heat, and with humidity. Uh, so Ooh. it Ugh. it does not work well for Houston at all um and and it's it's a nightmare to work with i can't stand it um and it does not do like corners very well where you have to like bring two pieces together and then yeah, slice and them nicely it. and things like that so uh now what's interesting is traditionally hide glue was used uh for this so you get you get a, a hot animal glue roller basically and you just feed your, your your flat pieces through and it applies like butter to the back of it and then and then uh it's a it's a one one application so you you do just the application to your upholstery and you slap it on and go to town and mm-hmm. uh those things are nice but they're not available to uh regular people like you and i the the solution is a water-based contact cement uh, it basically looks like milk and it's think of taking like Elmer's glue and just making it like 50% more water, like basically just hmm. the same viscosity as, as, uh, milk effectively. It's super, it's, it's really, really easy to work with. It dries oh, very quickly. Um, and I, the secret I just came up with a really, really, uh, disgusting band name. What's that? Sticky milk. Oh God! <laughs> it's like that. Episode, it's the uh, what is it? Um, what's the movie? Um, Anchorman. Oh yeah, milk was yeah. a bad choice. Yeah, milk was a bad choice. Because <laughs> it's like 110 degrees out in L.A. or San Diego, wherever the hell he's at. Yeah, and he's just like drinking milk out of oh, a carton in a glass case of emotion. <laughs> So, here's the thing with this water-based contact cement, it goes on super thin, so it you don't get any like ripples or bubbles. It does not make y- your your Tolex um, 
uh, soften Stretchy. at all. So it remains really stiff, so you can pull it and push it into corners and things like that. And uh, it responds really, really well to heat guns. So you can apply some, put a heat gun real fast to it, and it'll make it tacky. So as you're working with a large surface, you'll have different you pieces down. You can tack pieces down. You can work on one edge. And then if, if you've spent too long on it and the next edge is no longer tacky, just put a little bit more on there, hit it with a heat gun and it revitalizes it. And you can, you can work on that side. It's just, it's way, way easier to work with. It's just unfortunate because it's not readily available at, at your big box stores, but you can order it online. Um, it is not the cheapest stuff, but when it comes down to, like, if you if you put both, if, if, if you did one cabinetry job with each one, the cost just wouldn't even matter. If, like, yeah, yeah. if you had to experience. So, like, okay, so the, the goopy contact cement, like the DAP stuff, is great if you're putting, like, veneers on wood or something like that. It's so easy. But if you're doing, like, complex geometry where you have to wrap things around corners or or do curves or anything like that it just it's awful so what what you haven't said what what it is yet though besides a water-based contact adhesive uh is there a certain brand the the brand that i use is wilson art and the uh the model i think is just called h2o it's wilson art h2o and that's their water-based contact cement i can get a five gallon bucket on amazon for like a hundred bucks right Two hundred. Two hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, my, my local lumber yard actually just stocks it, so I can buy it by the gallon there. I think Home Depot and Lowe's, those guys, they used to have it on the shelf, but they. Oh, here we go. I, you can get one quart. Uh, it's like thirty dollars. Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, and one quart would be way more than enough to do your whole thing there. Oh yeah, plenty. Yeah. And uh, I, what I do is I use a little uh, one of those foam, those black foam brushes. Okay, and you just. Make sure your surface is super clean, you know, general prep stuff. But then um, it doesn't take a whole lot to, to make it work. And once you get it stuck on there, it's uh, really, really easy to work with. Okay. i have so, to give it a shot then. Yeah, that'll be fun. Doing corners. I've always wanted to make a jig that, like, butts up in a corner and, and has, like, a nice little slot that's at 45 degrees from the edge of the corner such that you could run a razor at an exact 45 from whatever corner you're doing and then you create the exact pieces that fold properly down the edge 3d printer man you make those fixtures you're you. right you're right actually yeah maybe you should make those jigs for us <laughs> <laughs> so um over the weekend i was actually running the amplifier um like all day on saturday um, and I had my MP3 player plugged into it. I actually, yeah, I do have an MP3 player still. Um, and I had it hardwired in. And uh, that, oh, that was actually one thing because it takes line level in. Right? It takes line level in because the old ceramic style needles actually output like like 700 millivolts is like what their peak peak is. They're big. Um, so it's pretty hot coming off a record. Which is also why, like, those ceramic needles eat records is because they, they have a lot of pressure and they move the needle a lot. Um, whereas compared to, like, a modern what's called a moving magnet uh, needle is, like, a couple millivolts, if that, of signal. Yeah. Like, that's um, a hot signal. <laughs> yeah. So I had, I, had, I had to put a – or I ordered a, 
like inexpensive tube preamp for it. Um, but the uh, so I was I just plugged my my MP3 player into it and it was just jamming away all weekend. And then at the end of the night, I picked up my MP3 player and it shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because my MP3 player has got a metal enclosure around it, and it's connected to the ground, which is through that death cap. So I got a nice little tingle sensation in my 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 left hand when I picked it up. I was like, "Ooh, tingle!" <laughs> well, okay, so those so it hadn't completely failed yet, but it was getting there. The, those death caps. The problem the problem with them is they. This was uh, an era where the, where we didn't have exactly uh, like the 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 X Y safety caps that are intended for a cross line or or whatnot, uh, and and most of the time they were just ceramic disc capacitors that it, it was like a point one or a point zero one that would connect the neutral to your chassis, uh, which okay fine it 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 gets the job done effectively but if that capacitor ever leaks or if that capacitor ever shorts now your chassis and anything that connects to that chassis is live effectively and and so they call it a death cap because um that can certainly happen right yeah i think that's going to wrap up this podcast so hopefully next week i have like the enclosure made It'd be nice yeah we'll see if everything shows up in time that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Mark Dillon. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone, and may the force be with you. Take it easy. <laughs>